Good morning. Welcome to their second service. Haven't said that in a few months, have we? The 11 o'clock service. We're in a series on the, the gospel, the good news according to Jonah, which is quite an ironic phrase. We'll look at that later. Jonah, the, this, this minor prophet of the Old Testament, four chapters. Minor not because it's insignificant, but because of its size. The gospel according to Jonah. Today, today we're looking at the second chapter and a little bit of the the third chapter. But I want to talk about surrendering, the idea, the concept of surrendering. Surrendering. There, there's, of course, the universal sign of surrender. There's a couple of them. One is the raising of the flag, the white flag, or the handkerchief, or the undershirt, whatever you have that's white. If you're tired of the battle, you raise it, and the, and the enemy knows, stop the fighting, they're, they're done. You, you've won. Then the, the other sign is, is the sign of, of raising of the hands. Okay? And the idea, the idea, honestly, of that is to show that you don't have weapons in your hand, that you're not raising your hand to, to shoot or do whatever you do, that, throw arrows or bows, whatever, but your hands are empty, and you're raising them, and you're, you're not going to fight anymore. Symbolic, but very important things in, in the area of warfare. And um, I want to talk this morning about surrendering, but, not, but surrendering to God, surrendering to God. And when we worship, it's interesting, one of the postures of worship is to raise the hands. You know, the scriptures talk about that. Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. In the holy place, bless the Lord. Then in 1 Timothy, the New Testament, he says, I desire then that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What's that about? What's that about? There's a very important thing we need to understand about the nature of human beings as we talk about God. There's a profound assumption in Scripture after the fall, after Adam fall, fell, and that's that the human race is hostile to God. We fight God. We're rebellion against God. We would like to shoot God off of his throne if we could. Look at Psalm 2. He created us and we don't show him honor or respect or the obedience that he deserves because we want to have that for ourselves. Ingratitude reigns among us. And so the raising of hands in worship in one sense is saying, God, I'm not going to fight you. And the repentant heart does that. Symbolically or even physically, raises the hands. Lord, I'm yours. I, I, I'm on your side. I'm not fighting you anymore. That's the heart of the repentant one, the heart that loves Lord. You know, there's an old, there was an old play a few years ago uh, with the title of Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. Your arms are too short to box with God. You're boxing with God, you're going to lose. Your arms are just too short. He's got long arms. Jonah needed to be reminded of that truth. Just as we all do. He needed to learn this truth. And, and, and he needed to learn it and relearn it. And that's what happens to us. We learn it, but we need to learn it and relearn it in our day. I want to read the passage, Jonah chapter 2. Verses uh, 1 to 3, verse 5. Into the third chapter a little bit. ESV translation. It's right here to your right. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of a fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said... I'm driven away from your sight, yet I should look again upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land where, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of God. Now, despite our human weakness, our human frailty, despite our sin, rebellion, God's saving purposes will be accomplished. Isn't that fantastic? God's purposes are going to be accomplished. We believe that. My, my, my title is A Prophet, A Fish, A City. A Prophet, A Fish, A City. The prophet learned and celebrated this, this salvation and deliverance that belong to the sovereign Lord because God broke him. God broke, and he breaks us. The fish was used by the sovereign Lord as the agent of salvation and deliverance. You know, God arranged providentially that fish for Jonah's experience. And the city found that if you call on the name of the Lord, the sovereign Lord, you will be saved, you will be delivered. Moses, the messenger, came to them. God brings messengers to bring people to salvation. A prophet, a fish, a city. First, you know, God breaks us that we might surrender to him. He breaks us. We are Jonah. Jonah's like us, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. The context, last week, uh, I have the map that Craig had for us last week because it's so helpful to understand what's going on in the first part of this, this, this book. He's, you know, he's there, and, and God, the Lord comes clearly in, in the first couple of verses of the book. God's, God says to the prophet Jonah, I want you to go. I want you to go to Nineveh, 550 miles to the northwest. I want you to go and preach. I want you to, be a pro to, to talk to them. And so, he, and so he gets, he hears clearly what God said. He goes to the shore, to the, to the harbor. He buys a ticket. So far, he's okay. But he asked for a ticket for Tarshish, not Nineveh. That's his problem. He's trying to run away from God. Instead of going 550 miles that way, he goes 2,500 miles that way, the other way. He's in rebellion. He's a prophet who is running from God. And, and, and as we heard in the Sunday school class, that, that, uh, 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 there was a sense of God being local. If I can just get away from this region, this locality, then I can flee from the presence of God. But no, that's not the kind of God that, that Yahweh is. And so Jonah is in rebellion, and in, in the first chapters you saw he had some problems there, and the, and the storm, and the, and, and the sailors, and it came up, the lot came up that he was the one, and they, they tossed him aside, and then there was a stilling. There, it was all peaceful. 
and, and, and they, it, it was so dramatic that the, the, the idolatrous sailors gave worship to the true and living God. But he didn't see that because he was in the water. He was having problems at that point. Jonah is like us, disobedient, rebellious, hateful. He's backsliding, sliding back. He has a problem of prejudice. We'll look at that a little bit more next week. He's prejudiced. He doesn't want God to bless those folk over there. Jonah is Israel. Jonah's the church. Jonah's you. Jonah is me. And yet, God pursues him. God pursued him. You can't run away from God. You can't go so far off the map that God can't find you. Have we learned that lesson ourselves? He, in the text, he talks, he uses the word distress. He says, out of my distress, he calls on the Lord. It seems that he describes being tossed from the boat and into the water and from the water and into the darkness of the great fish's belly. He may, he may have been unconscious and then, and then suddenly woke up in the darkness and wondered where he was, thought he probably was in Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead. But no, it was dark, but it wasn't the darkness of shale. It was the slimy, dark place of the belly of the fish, surrounded by all the things that were probably flying by him that the fish had eaten. It's pretty gross when you think about it now. I mean, he's in the, it's pretty gross. Um, and yet, he's thankful. Why is he thankful? Why is this not a lament, but a psalm of thanksgiving? Because he's still breathing, that's why. He's glad he's still alive. God uses this experience in his life to break him, to get Jonah to surrender to God's will, to his good and perfect will. God wants to do that for us. He wants us to glorify him, but sometimes he has to break us before we say yes to his will. In verse 7, he says, when my life was fainting away, this may have been a near-death experience for him. Fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. He tried to flee from the presence of the Lord, but even there, in the depths of the sea, in the depths of a great fish, in the depths of the sea, the Lord heard his prayer. The Lord heard him. Reminds me of the prodigal son, the story that Jesus told, doesn't it? In a far country, away from family, away from faith, away from all that he knew, yet he, 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 he came to a sentence. God met him there, and he came back. He returned to the faith. God wants every believer to come to the place where they totally committed to, they surrender to him. And sometimes when you are backslidden or you're in, in rebellion against God, God has to shake you up with an experience like a fish that he does here in Jonah's life. And I remember in my Christian life, I had an experience that was a, what I call a fish experience for me. I was a freshman at college, Frostburg, years ago, quite a few years ago. <laughs> and I was a place where I, I, my first time really being home, away from home, and um, I, I connected very quickly with the, the university chapter there at, at Frostburg. So I, it was Friday night, and uh, 6.30, great time, you know, singing and fellowship and hearing a Bible lesson and, and prayer. And then at 8.30, the meeting ended, and then I was going to meet some friends from a dorm who wanted to go have some fun afterwards. And, and all I remember is that at 8.30, the meeting was over, and by 9.30, I was drunk as a skunk. Only time in my life this has happened, but I, but I remember it, it clearly. And I remember the, the feeling of conviction that I felt the next day. Because I, I was one who was seeking to, be walk, to publicly walk with God, and there I was, drunk, on campus. 
And I knew the scriptures, Ephesians 5, 18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. I know that. I knew that. I knew that the scriptures say, you don't have to, not, not total absence, but, be, but to control your drinking. But I didn't control my drinking. I was drunk. And so I, 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 basically I made a commitment that day not to ever get drunk again. By God's grace, that was my commitment. But, you know, that wasn't the only thing I did. I also made a note because it wasn't just alcohol. That wasn't the only problem. That was only a symptom. The problem was I wanted to walk with God and walk in the world. That was the problem. That was, for me, that was the problem. And so my commitment was that I was going to put God first, put Christ first. If Christ would be my Lord. I will follow Christ. And that it might mean giving up some people that I thought were friends. But if they weren't helping me to go get closer to Christ or dragging me away from Christ, they really weren't friends. Hard decisions. Hard, but God broke me to the point where I knew that those decisions had to be made. That was my fish. That was the fish in my life. Where I, where I came out of a time of, of, of back, backslidden condition and began to pursue Christ very, very seriously. God will let you run away, but he'll chase you when you run away. The second thing I want to talk about is this fish, the fish. God arranges circumstances for us. And he put that fish there in Jonah's experience. Because ultimately, because of the fish, Jonah celebrated. He praised God. He said salvation belongs to the Lord. So God has orchestrated this, this situation so that ultimately there will be praise lifted up and he will be glorified. Look at Jonah's, Jonah's prayers. His prayer of desperation comes from inside that fish. Now, again, in chapter 1, verse 17, it said, it said there that, um, that the Lord appointed or prepared or ordained that fish. The thing I want you to understand is that now, as Jonah is, is, is retelling this in, his, in this psalm, he understands <laughs> that the Lord appointed it. He understands that everything that's happened isn't just happenstance. It isn't just a coincidence. He understands that, yes, the sailors tossed him aside the boat, but ultimately it was God. God was doing something. He understands that the Lord God is the one orchestrating his circumstances. And that's what brings him to his knees. That's what brings him to repentance and, and brokenness. And the fish is, is, is the instrument that, that God uses. James Bruckner about the fish says, it was a place that ought to have been a place of death, but it became a place of deliverance and life. It should have been a place of death, but it became a place of deliverance and life. You know, it reminds me of another place. It reminds me of a place called Golgotha. The cross, the tomb, Golgotha, a place that should have been a place of death and doom. And it was for like three days. But after three days, amen, <laughs> he rose up from, it became a place of life and victory. So that Jesus can say that as, as jo Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of, of the belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So the place of death became the place of victory and life for Jonah as a preview of what would happen to Jesus. From inside the fish, Jonah surrenders. I will pay my vows. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out. 
upon the dry land. Vomit, that's a strong word. Regurgitate, puke, whatever word. It's a strong word. <laughs> it's a gross word, but it's the word that's, that's appropriate because he's been walking in disobedience and now God's just spewing him out onto the land. Normally in the Old Testament, the, the, the idea of vomiting is done in, in, in places of discipline. Of Leviticus 20, uh, 18, 25 to 28. The land vomits out those who live in abomination. Things like that is what the, the context there. But here, the idea of vomiting is used uh, in the context of God's deliverance. God is delivering him by vomiting him out upon the dry land. Interesting usage of that phrase in the Old Testament. Now, take note of two things as we think about this experience. I'm not going to look at all the details of what happened in those verses here, uh, in verses 1 to, uh, uh, to 10, but I want you to realized that there were two deliverances. <laughs> he was delivered from the waters by God when God appointed the fish to swallow him up. He's in the water. He was tossed into the water. He's in the water. And we don't know how long it was before the fish came by, but I imagine it was, it was quite a while, and he was delivered from the water, of drowning in the water, by the fish swallowing him up. That's one deliverance. And then he's in, and then he's in, he's in the, the belly of the fish. And we don't know how long he was in the belly of the fish, but we know it was dark, he seemed like he was on a fainting almost, his life was over, and, and then he was vomiting on. So there's, there's a two-fold deliverance here that happens here, not just one. And that's why, they, again, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. He's, he's in awe at what God has done. Painful experience for him. Probably one of the most painful of his life. But he's thanking God for it. Because he, he understands that God is sovereign, and God is working in his life. God is the sovereign Lord. He's the sovereign king who rules from on high with wisdom and power. He's the God who uses pagan sailors. He's the God who uses storms. He's the God who uses the, the casting of the lot. He's the God who uses the fish, the great fish experience for him. The, the, the fish is, is simply a creature created by God. Notice in Scripture how the plants... And the vegetation and the animals and the birds and the fish in the air do what the Creator created them to do. Only humans put their fists before God and say, no, not your will, my will. We only do that. God arranges circumstances to get us to the point where we open our fists and surrender. The Westminster Confession of Faith, of our denominational uh, confession, has some great words here. Follow, follow this. This is, this is precise language here. The God who created everything also upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least by his completely wise and holy providence. This is in chapter 5, the doctrine of providence. Then he moves on chapter, later, the second paragraph. God is the first cause, and in relationship to him, everything happens unchangeably and infallibly. However, by this same providence, he orders things to happen from secondary causes. So God's the first cause, but he uses secondary causes. As a result of these secondary causes, some things must inevitably happen. Others may or may not happen, depending on the voluntary intentions of the agents involved. And some things do not have to happen, but may, depending on other conditions. Complex sentence, but very precise language and very true to what we understand happens in life. God is, old. God is sovereign, that's the point. And there's some things that will be accomplished because God is sovereign and I'm not. And I'm so glad, aren't you? I used to, that's, that's confessional language, but in my home where I grew up, we heard, my mom used to, you know, have pithy sayings. I don't know if she heard the saying, 
from her pastor or her mother. I don't know where she heard it, but she reminded us that man makes the plan, but God made the man. Man can make the plan, but God made the man. That was her way of saying, don't you think that mankind's in charge? God sits high and looks low. By the way, man makes a plan. That's women, too. It's a man it's generic, the human race. We're not in charge. God is in charge. Salvation is of the Lord. Application. What are you going through? Are you going through something in your life even now, even this week, even this month? Are you at a crisis in your life? Is God somehow trying to get your attention? That happens. Maybe right now you're in the middle of the fish. And, and, and you know, you, you just, you're feeling like maybe this psalm is your, is, is your testimony today. You're desperate like Jonah, and you feel it. There are many reasons why we have difficult experiences in life, but sometimes it's because God is bringing that circumstance to, to break us in a, final, in a very definitive way that we might follow him more faithfully and make commitments to him. He does that. I'm glad he does that. Have you ever experienced a fish experience or are you just wallowing around at ease? I trust that you're, open, that you're sensitive to God and what he does in your life. Jonah was, eventually. God, God, God of hold of him. My life fanning away. The problem he has is idolatry. He doesn't understand. In fact, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I believe when he, write, when he says that in verse 8, he's thinking about the sailors, the idol who worship idols, because he doesn't know that they have actually begun to worship the true living God. He doesn't know that the one who's the idol worshiper is him. He's the one who's mixed up in idolatry, the idolatry of thinking his people are better than other people. And therefore, God wouldn't love those other people. So, so he's in process. Jonah's in process. That's why this book continues for a couple more chapters. Surrender to the true living God. That's the point. Surrender. And, and you'll, you'll, you'll get to know him in fresh ways. And that's what he does. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed. I will, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The city. God, God brings messengers to us. The, the, Jonah is a messenger to Nineveh. He comes and the city surrenders. God brings messengers to us so that we could, can surrender. Again, the, the, the first verse of chapter 3, um, the, the word comes to him a second time. The same thing, arise, go to Nineveh. This time he doesn't take, uh, buy a trip, a, a ticket the other direction. He goes straight to Nineveh where, where God called him to go. We know one thing. He's, this time he's going to do what God wants him to do. At least he's going to go there. Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is, is kind of code for the, for the Assyrians. Just like, you know, we talk about Moscow, we really talk about Russia. You talk about France, you really talk about, you're talking about Paris, you're talking about France. The, 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 the key city represents the whole empire. When people in the world, around the world talk about Washington, D.C., they're talking about the United States. So, going to Nineveh, it's the, the, the capital of Assyria. It's the main city of Assyria that's around it. And so, yeah, he goes there, um, that, which was hard for him, as you know. Because Jonah hated the Ninevites. He hated them. He hated the Assyrians. Verse 4, notice the summary of his message, though. Notice the summary of his message in verse 4. Goes to the city. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Boom, that's it. Real gospel proclamation. Real good news there, isn't it? 
Real offer of real offer of forgiveness there, is it? Real offer of hope there. Real offer that God might might if it, that He doesn't even say if, He doesn't even say turn or burn. He just says you're gonna burn. So as you see, Jonah is still in process. He goes in obedience, but he doesn't even give a clear gospel. Guess what? God used it. God used this messed up prophet with a messed up message. And the city believed. They believed. The people of Nineveh believed. There's hope for us, ain't it? There's hope for us. Messed up people who don't always speak the gospel clearly and accurately. There's hope for us, amen? God can use us to bless other people. Nineveh is a city. Baltimore is a city. Cities where, where, where people cluster together. God loves people, so God loves cities because that's where people are. Cities are where cultural values get formed and modified, and businesses and universities and hospitals and media, they're located in cities. That's where the people are. And we wrongly think that we have to have it together before God can use us. Not true. Not true at all. Personal application for each one of us. Let's become messengers. Let's become messengers of, of what God has done for us. You don't have to articulate the gospel with profundity. Just share what you know. Share what you know. Share Jesus. Like Jonah, you don't have to have it all together for God to use you. Because he's the one who saves people. Salvation belongs to me, no, to you, no, to the Lord. That's what he learned. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let, let, let me quickly just say, let me be the messenger for you. You need Jesus. You need him. And, and I'm not going to say turn or burn. I'm going to say turn because there's life in Jesus. And if you don't turn, yes, there's problems. There's judgment that's there. But, but the gospel is, is a full message of the love of God for those who would come to him. Not just a warning about the fact that if you don't. Jesus died on the cross that you might have life and have it with abundance. And that message is for you. And if you want to talk about that more, uh, go, go to the intercessor's room. And, and, but, but come to Christ and, and surrender to him. In James chapter 4, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, give grace to the humble. See, he, God is humbling Jonah. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Surrender your heart to God. In other words, salvation belongs to him. Everyone who calls on his name shall be saved. You know, this is a special Sunday. Fifteen years ago, as, as Michael talked about earlier, uh, the terrorist attack on our nation. I mean, most of you who are old enough remember that day, tragic day. Over 3,000 people killed during the attacks in Washington, D.C. and in New York, including 400 police officers and firefighters. Some of you probably know some people or who, who know people there. Tragic event. Let's not forget about the fourth plane, too, Flight 93 that went down in Pennsylvania. Terry and I have visited that site. It's a sobering experience of just the quietness of that farmland and to imagine the plane coming off the horizon and then seeing where those people died. 
You know, the Sunday after that experience, churches around the nation were filled with people. Some people felt that this war would unite our nation in many ways. I would say, sadly, that the nation adjusted fairly quickly and went back to normality. Ignoring God, rationalizing him away, doing our own thing. Let me ask a question. This is a kind of a question, a biblical question. Does God care about America? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You look at your Bible, can you find America? No. Can you find the United States? No. I can tell you that. Does God therefore have a will for our nation? Yes. Yes. God has a will for our nation. Amos chapter 9, verse 7. Carl Ellis showed me this verse years ago. Uh, um, Amos says, are, are, you, are you not like the Cushites to me? This is God talking. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Now, the Cushites were the people of the, the darker-skinned people. He says, you're like the Cushites. Did I not bring Israel from the land of Egypt? Which we have that in the Bible, in Exodus. The Philistines from Kaftor. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Syrians from Akur. The Bible doesn't talk about that. So these events occurred in history, but they weren't just events that occurred in history. God says, I did it. You ever thought about that? Does God have a will for the nations that aren't in the Bible? You better believe he does. God has a will because he's the Lord of all. I've been in my own quiet time reading the book of Isaiah, just reading through it again. Interesting, interesting book. But God speaks clearly to his covenant people in, in the book of Isaiah, but he also speaks to the Egyptians the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Moabites, the people of Tyre, the people of Sidon, the people of Damascus, the people of Cush, those are the ones I found. He, he always comes back to them about several things, several concerns God has about people in general. Here they are. Idolatry, pride, immorality, oppression, the shedding of innocent blood. Those are the kind of things. So, so as you read your Old Testament, not if you read, as you read your Old Testament, look for that. Look for that. God cares about the nations. God cares about our nation. He does. He has a will for us. One of the things I did this summer, one movie that I saw this summer uh, was the movie Concussion. It's about, about the NFL. Troubling movie if, you, if you're a sports fan like me, if you're a football fan like me. Just, there's, a, there's a scene there with a Nigerian doctor, um, Dr. Bennett, um, he, 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 he's uh, Bennett Amalu, I think I pronounced his name, Amalu, I call him Dr. Bennett, okay? He, he's researched the impact of violent collisions on the brains of NFL players. And after several deaths and, and, and even suicides by some of the retired players, there's, there's major concerns. Now, he's found out that there's really a connection between the violence and so he's trying to, to get the league to understand, but he can't understand why the NFL is battling his research so strongly. So there's a scene where Dr. Bennett says, um, he talks to a couple other doctors who come in, what do they want? The doctor says, the NFL wants you to say that you made it all up. Dr. Bennett says, I made it up. The other doctor says, they're accusing you of fraud. Another doctor says, if you retract, you'll be fine, and this all goes away. Kind of a hint there, you know, problems there. And then Dr. Bennett says, why? 
Why are they all doing this? He thought that his research would be wanted by the league so they could help make things better. And then this statement that, that, that I'll never forget, this one doctor says, they are terrified of you. Bennett is going to war with a corporation that has 20 million people on a weekly basis craving their product the same way they crave food. The NFL owns a day of the week the same way the church used to own it. And when I heard that comment, I said, oh my goodness. Is that true? Does the NFL own Sundays now the way the church used to own it? I'll let you ponder that thought. But God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. That's what I see in my scripture. So Jonah learned that truth in a moment of desperation, and Nineveh learned that truth in their moment of, of desperation. And, and is America desperate enough? Are you and I desperate enough is the question. Over 100 years ago, Abraham Lincoln was considered one of the greatest presidents of our nation. In the midst of the Civil War, he signed a famous petition. Let me read a portion of it. Insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people? We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand that preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. So it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Our nation needs to be strong in the face of the opposition that we have as a nation. But our nation needs to be humble before the face of God. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Grace. How do you receive grace? How does an individual get grace? How does a family get grace? How does a church get grace? How does a community, a, a city, a nation, how do you get grace? The scripture is very clear. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus died for our sins we might believe in him and surrender our hearts to him. We deserve God's wrath, God's punishment. Jesus, who was sinless, took the pain and the agony of death that we deserved. 
He was judged on the cross for all who would embrace his work personally. So we can declare with the saints through the ages, salvation, salvation belongs to him, the Lord. So submit yourselves to God. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. Let's pray. Lord God, Jonah had an incredible experience, the most definitive experience of his life. He thought, he, was, he thought it was over, but he was delivered. He was delivered for a purpose, that you might be glorified and that people at Nineveh might hear. Well, we want you to do that in our lives, whatever it takes, that we might be glorified, that you might be glorified through us, and that others in Baltimore might hear. Lord, break us, mold us, help us to surrender to you, to be your people. Lord, I would pray for anyone who's here today who's never surrendered to you, who's, never, who's just trusting themselves still. May they know that salvation is simple, a simple act of faith, but it's giving up, trusting ourselves, and trusting in you wholly. Do that work in our lives. Seal this word. Help us to, to, to run with it and go with it and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's receive God's blessing, God's benediction today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace now forevermore. Amen. God bless you.